Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Man, I'm officially on board with this being a crisis. When you start canceling my St. Patrick's Day plans, we have a serious, serious problem. The river's not going to turn green. The river's not going to turn green. I mean, it's, you know, gross green anyways. But now it's not going to be neon green. I don't like this at all. This this must be really, really bad. This is Chicago, man. The river's (laughs) got to be green on St. Patrick's Day. Oh, I want to be in just a mosh pit of drunk irish people it's got to be safe right oh, the irish are clean people and sanitary right yeah. <laughs> and sanitary. <laughs> too soon <laughs> <laughs> hi guys it's uh barstool politics i'm your host nick mcguire joined as always by dr bill monk from north central college and dr phil barker from keene state college hi guys hey nick hey <laughs> um oh <Uh-oh. Uh-oh. laughs> distance distance bill <laughs> At the black lung, Pa. Um, all the usual fun stuff before we get started and some announcements. Um, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, want to see what we're up to, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, the beers that we, no, I just said that. Uh, the podcast itself, uh, this is this is the change right here. So uh, we have been hosted on SoundCloud for the past however many years, three years that we've been doing this. Um, We are going to uh, move our hosting service over to Anchor, uh, which is a a different service, uh, will allow us to do sponsorships and and, uh, grow more uh, effectively. Um, This will not change anything for anybody listening on iTunes or Spotify or anything like that. What about Blueberry? Blueberry will be fine, too. All, All of those things will be fine. Um, Our old catalog will remain on SoundCloud. All the new episodes will be hosted like I said, through Anchor and get pushed to iTunes and all the other services. So not a big change. Um, you'll probably start hearing sponsorship sponsorship messages uh, in episodes, in the upcoming episodes. I'm not sure which or how quickly that will happen, but just be aware of that. Um, and then another thing, uh, we're going to try and do live shows. Um, we're going to test it through Facebook, which allows us to do uh, live audio streaming. Um, so we might test that out next week. Um, check out our social channels uh, for information on that. Um, we'll give you the time that we do it. It'll probably be the normal time that we record. Um, so, you know, late in the day on uh, on Wednesdays. But um, just like I said, keep an eye on our social for that. Um, Where they can listen, but they won't be able to come see us, Nick. They're right? not going to see yeah, us. It's not like we're not. It's not like the live show when we brought everybody together. No, it's nothing just a Facebook like that. Live. No, it's... we're not allowed to bring people right, together right. anymore. <laughs> they actually think that was ground zero at this point. Um, yeah, so only audio on that one, which uh, you know will we'll be fun. We'll test it out and see how it works. 
Um, but the podcast, like I said, you can also find it on uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, um, any major podcasting platform. Uh, please review us, share us, like us through those things. Uh, and then our merch line you can find on teespring.com. Um, look for a direct link on our social channels. Um, mugs, t-shirts, uh, hoodies, uh, various other things, um, new things coming all the time. Um, so definitely keep an eye out on that. Keep an eye out for that. I mean, eye out on that. That doesn't make any sense. Um, anyways, that's about all the announcements, but since we already kind of gave away the main topic, we're going to talk about coronavirus because it's apparently a big issue that people are talking about. Um, Bill, um, this is officially a pandemic. So... What as the hell's of, going on? As of this afternoon, you're right, Nick. We have officially entered pandemic territory, and apparently coronavirus is coming for all of us. So the numbers of coronavirus cases in the U.S. are now over 1,000. The entire country of Italy is locked down. Britain's health minister tested positive for the coronavirus, and the National Guard has been deployed to New York to, re, uh, to create a one-mile containment area in New Rochelle for two weeks. Ever the optimist, President Trump continues to play down the threat, saying that the epidemic, quote, will go away. It's just, it's going to go away, Nick. Right, gonna, what, as long away. as we stay calm, stay calm. <laughs> right. and it'll go away. Once it kills all the people, then we're fine. Right. And it's going to go away. It's hard to be calm then, but that's, that's okay. Um, Trump was ups, deeply upset about the $2,000, uh, 2000 point stock market crash on Monday. And apparently on Wednesday, the market also was down big and has pitched the idea of an eye popping $800 billion payroll tax cut. Uh, we're now also able to compare the results of strategies that have been deployed by China, Italy, South Korea, and other countries, all of which raises, raises the question of how the United States has been responding and whether we should be more aggressive. I will say on the academic front, we are starting to see colleges and universities across the country send their students home and the shift on all, uh, to all online formats. It's, it's really, really something. So, Phil, so many interesting angles here. Where, where do you want to start? Uh, there are. We we should get around to talking about the the governmental response and the political uh, approach to it and everything. But yeah, I I, I want to start by uh, talking about just how serious this is. I think people who haven't been paying that close of attention, I, I watch the nightly news, you know, and they have ten minutes to talk about it, and so they talk about it. And I don't know that people are fully understanding the seriousness of this. So so we're in this phase of exponential growth, right? The the numbers of cases. So I've been following the last couple of days, you know. Two days ago, there were 400 confirmed cases. And then yesterday, it was up to 750. Today, it's over 1,200 now. Um, it, it's going to multiply really quickly. Um, estimates that you and I texted about this, Bill, the, um, the uh, Anthony Fauci, the guy who's the, the, the communicable diseases guy at the National Institutes of Health, testified yesterday that uh, um, if we don't take more dramatic action, we could be looking at what, 70 to 150 million people who end up with coronavirus in the U.S. Just in the United States. Just, just in the, United in the States. U.S. Yeah. So when you when you look at that, I, you know, I, I, I ran the numbers with my class. If you start at, you know, we've been doubling the number of cases uh, in, depending on where you look in the around the world. The number of cases double um, in conservative areas about every six days. In the U.S., it's been doubling like every two days. Um, but if you start with 400 cases at the beginning of this week and they double every week, it does not take long for us to get to. 250,000 people across the country. We're, you know, two months from now, if it's doing, you know, the numbers are almost, they're not almost, they are higher than that, right? We have, we have 1200 confirmed cases, but there are people who haven't been tested yet. Um, if you take a higher number and they double every three days, as they've been doing, uh, you get to, you know, hundreds of millions of people in a period of, uh, 
you know, two months, right? So we're talking about very quickly, this is going to happen. Um, if you look at like Italy and China and South Korea, places where this has happened, we are on the exact same trajectory, the exact same rate of growth as they were. We're about 10 days behind Italy in terms of, of growth. So when you see the stuff that's going on in Italy, we are a bigger country. Um, but that's, you know, two weeks down down the line before we're at that point. So, um, and you know, and the people, as people have talked about, the problem is, is the mortality rate is not... It's not super high. It's not incredibly low. It's like thirty-five times higher than the flu. It's um, roughly like three point what three point five percent is this kind yeah. of the average number you hear a lot. Yep. The danger is that that if it spreads really quickly, which is what happened in Italy, the healthcare services get overrun. There's just not enough doctors and enough ICUs and enough respirators to deal with everyone, which is why we see colleges closing down and stuff like that, because they're trying to slow um the spread. I mean, just to, just think a little bit about those numbers you threw out there. If you're talking, if the if the if the Congress is being briefed by the experts saying it could be anywhere between seventy and one hundred fifty million, and if the death rate is three three point five percent or even a little under that, I mean, you're talking about millions, potentially millions of people dying in the United States, right? And then that becomes a, a much more tangible figure. You know, anywhere between two and six million people. That's 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 where you're like, wow, this really does right. feel like a significant thing. And, and this is the danger. This is the difficult thing with like a public health health crisis like this is that uh, it, it may not be. I mean, it's there's a chance if we continue on the trajectory we're on, that's the path we're headed down. We don't know for sure the future. Right. So something could some external event could happen. It, you know, warm weather could, in fact, change how this is spread or how deadly it is. Um, so we don't know for sure. The problem is we need to be make we need to be taking actions now to prevent that. The problem is if you take effective actions, then the worst case scenario never comes true. And it's easy to look back and say we you overreacted. But in fact, overreacting wasn't overreacting. It is what prevented the worst case uh, scenario from occurring. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've we need to be doing more aggressive things now to prevent the Italy China type thing from happening, you know, two weeks or a month from now. So, you know, I'm I the college is closing that today NCAA announced that the the NCAA tournament's gonna be played without a live crowd. Um that will be weird. It's costly to the NCAA, but it's the oh. right thing to do. But it, yeah, that's the thing. It's not only is it going to be strange, that's millions and millions of, of dollars money, right? in ticket sales. And I mean, that is I, that that was the one. A lot of things have shook me with this, but that was like, wow, that's um, the one. Right. Because that's, <laughs> that, you know, because it's not it is money. Right. I mean, usually the NCAA always does what's most beneficial economically. Sure. And, and the fact that they're doing that, I that I, that surprised me some. Mm -hmm. See, I am the perpetual optimist of the group. So looking on the sunny <laughs> side of things, um, I think this is uh, going to clamp down on unfettered globalism uh, and the uh, industrial uh, collegiate complex, you know, that you guys happen to be a part of. So I think this this is a good this is a good balance. This brings us back to a good center when all is said and done. It'll humble us. It will humble us. It'll, you know, bring the NCAA down a couple of notches. Um, no, realistically, this is. I'm still on the fence of the the severity of what this is thus far. And I think a lot of people are. But I, I think a lot of that is due to the fact that we don't have good information on this from the federal government, uh, certainly not from the federal federal bureaucracy uh, and the CDC, who is supposed to be in charge of this. And I think I told you guys last time um, they don't have 
most of their CDC guidelines or standards uh, translated into the the you know primary languages uh, in the U.S. or the ones that are most affected by the coronavirus worldwide. Uh, we've tried to do that. My company has tried to do that. Several other people have tried to do that. Um, and the bureaucracy just doesn't want to move on it, which is frightening to, me to think that something so simple would take this much effort for them to do. Um, the other side of that is, you know, joking about the, the, uh, the NCAA, the economic impact of something that you don't know of the unknown in the system that we're, we, you know, currently operate within is terrifying. Realistically, there isn't, we aren't at an inflection point where this is a severe health crisis yet, but just the specter of that, the specter of the unknown of what this could potentially mean, made the stock market drop 2000 points. Like it's, yeah. that's, that's horrifically frightening more than the actual epidemic mm -hmm. itself at this point. Um, yeah, there, there are a lot of unknowns and I, I wish we had more concrete answers, but is we don't have enough concrete answers about what the disease is. The fact that it, you know, doesn't present symptoms for at least two days up to 14 days. So realistically, the numbers are probably a lot higher than they, um, that we even know at this point. This is kind of a perfect pandemic in that way where you can have it, you can be relatively healthy. I mean, you can be totally healthy and still spread it to others, right? right. That's, that's what's scary. That's why China has a good lock on this thing. All you have to do is weld people into their homes and then set the homes on fire. Well, I mean, even like, you know, Ebola and some of the other pandemics we've had, symptoms presented themselves quickly. Right. So you knew within a day or two whether you were sick and that allowed for the, the local health community to respond. And this is, this is very, very different from and, those other. And beyond that, I mean, this is, this is a weird kind of positive, but when you talk about Ebola, not only did you get sick quickly, you got really sick really quickly, right. which yeah. meant that you weren't going out and interacting with people. So that, that's right. part of the problem is that this, for a lot of people, this is a bad cold flu type thing. And so they can, we in America have, you know, our part of our culture is that you, you, you know, you tough through things and you're sick, you go to work anyway. And so if it were a really, if it came on hard and it made people really sick, and if the mortality rate was higher, it wouldn't spread as much. And so a higher mortality rate actually might end up in fewer deaths in the long run because it would limit the spread. Mm -hmm. can, we, can we talk about what you were saying, Nick, about the bureaucracy? There's, there's an interesting element to this because I think we have, I, I think it's pretty clear that the U.S. government has bungled the response, right? This has been a, like China, you know, we've, this has been coming, potentially coming for months now, right? I mean, the, the outbreak in China was, began several months, a number of months ago. It was in, you know, late 2019. So it's been four months or whatever. Um, so a lot of other countries, you know, Taiwan is one that people put to uh, look to started making preparations early. We did none of that. And so, I think there's a lot of different causes. I, I, this will be an interesting study looking back on it. And I, I wonder if we can talk about like, you know, where you see the blame falling because there is the bureaucracy part, right? Bureaucracy is inefficient. Um, there's the federalism part where the, all the states have sort of different approaches and different, you know, so in, in some cases that works well for the United States. In this case, having a like clear national approach or policy would be beneficial um, and then you throw on to all of that the Trump administration. So it's been very clear that Donald Trump does not want this to be happening. Um, you know, from the beginning has talked about how this is going to go away. This isn't this is no big deal. He's trying to manage uh, perceptions or how people perceive this because he's concerned about the stock market and all sorts of other things. So you'll have a 
implications. He's he's in a reelection campaign right. where the right. worst thing you could have is an economy tanking and half the country with coronavirus. Right. So you have these b- bizarre press conferences where uh, you have, you know, CDC and National Institute of Health people getting up and talking about how this is going to get worse. This is going to grow. And then Donald Trump steps up and says, it's all under control. It's going to go away. And that's having an effect. So it's having an effect in that. I think we talked about last week. Republicans view this differently than Democrats, um, partly because of the the messaging coming out of Fox News and the Trump administration and and whatnot. Um, but there's also evidence that the Trump administration isn't just not acting; they're acting against it. So the CDC, you know, at their direction, has has told doctors to stop early on. That was the story that came out yesterday. The the early tests in Seattle were done by a local doctor and the CDC told her to stop testing um, because it wasn't an approved test. And so, you know, you, you have all of these different elements. I mean, how much of the blame lays at the feet of a Trump administration who is, you know, I mean, they, they dramatically cut CDC funding. They did away with the, the CDC pandemic response team. How much of it is, you know, just the natural problems with bureaucracy? Do you, what, what do you think? Um. I mean, I'm of the mindset, I, the the perception and, and the optics of what the administration has been doing is extremely detrimental. I, I think that particular case, and then there was a, another case, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before, where uh, judges uh, around the country were posting uh, guidelines to prevent the spread of coronavirus, which realistically are you know, flu, flu guidelines, wash your hands, you know, don't touch your face, don't cough into your hands, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then putting a, a CDC logo on it. So the administration said, I don't know if it was the administration of the CDC specifically said, you can't put these up there. These are not the guidelines that we approved mm-hmm. and had them take those standards down, which realistically, yeah, the standards that they're putting up there are, are standard. Like I said, they're, they're, very innocuous things that everybody should be doing anyways, because people are gross and don't pay attention to them. Um, But there's also the argument that this is not, not, not necessarily the policy, but this isn't necessarily, um, you know, the approved guidelines that are put forward by the institutions that are supposed to be the authority on this. So who are you to do that? And you could be causing more harm than good. The the um, rules themselves are, uh, like I said, are relatively innocuous, but I think that's just one example of that. So I don't know if it's being overly cautious or if it's a specific policy decision. I'm of the mindset that, you know, the simplest explanation is the best. And I don't necessarily think it's a, a conspiracy to just, you know not have the information out there. Well, I think there's multiple things going on, right? I mean, on one level, Trump is is worried about the political implications of this. He's worried about the stock market going down, about the economy. I mean, we're in a basically in a bear market now. Um, that That's troubling to him. Uh, you know, as of like this morning, there was a story saying that the, 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 the Trump and the White House said, we don't want federal agencies uh, talking about what happens at the high level meetings, right? So they're classifying all those conversations that are happening relating to the coronavirus. And when you're addressing a pandemic, more transparency is better than none, right? I mean, so those, those are the little things. I think the other thing to think about is the way in which, you know, before getting to the crisis, the Trump administration has been cutting back on the bureaucracy, right? They, we've talked about the fact that 
They've gotten rid of the experts and they've brought in the, the, the loyalists. And that will have an impact here. You don't have the same people with the same expertise. So, you know, it, it may be mean things are developing more slowly. So there are certainly things that the Trump administration has done that make this more difficult. I've also seen some really interesting discussion about how countries confront this. And the, the to fill your point, the fact that the United States has both federal and state levels makes it more complicated to deal with this. Whereas a country like Germany, where everything is, is kind of done uniformly, allows them to be more efficient in their response. So, I mean, I think the United States is it, there's a whole bunch of issues that make this more difficult for a large country to deal with. I think you should start um, emulating Iran personally. Just seem to have the best response let the this. prisoners go let the prisoners they go get coronavirus <laughs> uh, like a lot of the leadership <laughs> ends up having it anyways and then we solve you know kill two birds with one stone no pun intended so, so do, go ahead so one of the you know talking about the trump administration response i mean early there, there's maybe some evidence like today he was tweeting about how he's going to use the full power of the federal government to fight this which is a change in rhetoric to some extent exactly. but yeah. early on it had been very much about this is not a problem you know it's baghdad bob right like there's nothing to see here the the, the comparison that i saw a few people make and it's it's going to sound harsh when i first say it but i think there's something to it that we could talk about which is uh, comparing it to Chernobyl, which was like very much in the news, right? This idea of early on, rather than like looking at the data or dealing with what's actually happening, the the the, the push was to control perceptions, right? That this is not that big of a of a of a thing, right? We're going to keep the number of tests down. Trump even said about not letting the people from the Princess Cruise in California off because he didn't want the numbers to go up, right? So the thing that he was concerned with was keeping numbers low, not in a, I want to make sure people don't get this, but in a, like, I want to make sure that, that, you know, it looks like we have it in control, um, which is not, again, not great because what ends up happening is they, by the time the numbers become undeniable, the problem is, is, you know, a much bigger problem to address. I, 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 that, I mean, that, that analogy seems to fit to me in some way. Well, the, the Chernobyl, I think the Chernobyl thing is really, really interesting because when you think about those early stages in the Soviet Union, what they wanted to do was cover it up, cover it up, right? And then you had, it was clear, the data was clear that this was a big, big problem and they wanted to do everything to control the the PR story, not the real public health concern. And and I, I don't know if, if we can say that's the case for the entire government or Trump himself, right? I mean, I think there's... Right. We've got this divide where even at the executive level, there are real individuals who are trying to confront this problem, yep. but they run into a president who is thinking more about the political and economic ramifications of it. I, I should make clear that I, I don't I don't think that the Trump administration is Soviet government, right? There's far more openness. There's far more conversation. There's press. I, I just mean about the the sort of impetus, yeah. the push behind it, the the, sure. the, the initial Comrade. reaction. <laughs> well, and I think we I think I think we mentioned this before. This is the first real crisis that the Trump administration has faced. They've created a number of crises where they've, you know, whether it's Iran or North Korea, Trump creates it and then kind of <clears throat> sort of tries to solve it. This is the first one that's been brought to him. And this is the first real test of the administration and their ability to confront it and, and show that the administration as a whole is capable of solving a problem. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Phil. It's at least the first crisis that we've cared about. The thing that I've seen people point out is that there were like 3,000 people who died in Puerto Rico from a hurricane, but we don't seem to care about that. So that one doesn't really that. That's a fair point. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Where? Uh, um, yeah, the, the, the Chernobyl uh, analogy is, is interesting. Um, 
I, I would say that given the response that we've seen and the fact that we are talking about it as fervently as we are, um, suggests that I, I would think that regardless of what the worst case scenario of this is, we'll never actually get to that point given the response from independent healthcare and the media and society at large. I, I, I don't think that as polarized as the political system is right now, I think that there are enough independent bodies, individuals, um, and, and groups to suggest that they, if they, you know, it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. It's going to be a duck at the end of the day. At the state and the local level who will take this more seriously. And even at the federal level, than the president might, Mm -hmm. should we, should we play the, so we, we, president Trump addressed the crisis yesterday and talked about his unique, ability to confront this uh and his genes and his you know should we just play this nick this is uh yeah sorry oh no no just having a coronavirus related thing (laughs) sent to me um here we go and i like this stuff you know my uncle is a great person he was at mit he taught at mit for i think like a record number of years he was a great super genius dr john trump I like this stuff. I really get it. People are surprised that I understand. Every one of these doctors said, how do you know so much about this? Maybe I have a natural ability. Maybe I should have done that instead of running for president. That's the kind of shit I would say in an interview when I don't, when I know I'm not qualified for it. <laughs> well, that, that scares me to think that this is the, the leader of the, of the country and, and not providing sound and sane advice. The thing that concerns me about it is as you watch the people around him. So he's surrounded by, you know, health experts. Uh, and there is a tendency in those press conferences. Like I think people have realized. So partly people who can be replaced have been replaced by Trump loyalists. But even other people who who haven't been replaced, who are, you know, health officials, have realized that part of how you get stuff done is by flattering the president. And so you can see people, you know, the, the surgeon general, right. Who was talking about how the president, you know, sleeps less and is healthier than he is or whatever. Like that's crazy. That's unnecessary. It's like weird North Korean shit, right? Like you you shouldn't feel the need to praise dear leader in order to talk about the, and so that's what concerns me is the extent to which other people have sort of adapted to that. Um, well, in order to make it work. people, right? I mean, it's, right. there are some like loyalists around him who do this all the time. But what we've seen is, you're right, the Surgeon General, who is, to, by all, I guess, measures, a, a smart individual. He knows what he's doing. He's, you know, he's he's good to be in that position, is also doing this, where you kind of, you just assume this is what you have to do. That was so bizarre to see the Surgeon General say that. If you found an individual who all he ate was filet of fish and milk uh, milkshakes, wouldn't you think he's kind of, and he was in perfect health. Wouldn't you think he's kind of godlike? I know I would. Perfect health. <laughs> yeah. He can't. He I like, forgot to the, do the quotes. The bronzer, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nick, you had mentioned the the era of partisanship we we live in. So I, maybe we can talk for a second before we yeah. uh, have to move on about the res- the response to this. So there has been a debate this week about on the financial side, right? So it has been a, a, a blow to, and it will be a blow to the economy. People aren't traveling. People aren't, you know, if people are stuck in their houses, they can't, there's all sorts of financial questions related to the colleges that are closing. If you notice the list of colleges that are closing are closing are all large and or wealthy schools. Um, Huge so, endowments. Right. Yeah. So, you know, small colleges are going to have a much harder time with the same thing with small businesses. And so, there have been sort of two sides to this. The Republicans and Trump has like floated this idea of a payroll tax cut. 
um, of of uh, aid packages going to you know airlines and cruises and hotels and stuff like that. It's much more this kind of business side supply. You know, like we're going to help businesses who are hurt. Democrats have taken much more of an approach of we need to have paid sick leave. We need to have, you know, bailout package type stuff available for individuals in society who are, you know, hurting from this, who are you know, hourly workers who can't go to work and and, and whatnot. Um, I, it's weird to see that partisanship play out in an ideal world. That would be great because really we need both, right? Businesses are going to get hurt by this. Individual people are going to get hurt by this. Both need to be addressed in an ideal world. It would be great if they would come together and put together this large package that addresses both sides. It doesn't feel like that. Like there was a story today that Trump's not willing to even work with Nancy Pelosi on this. So I, I, I worry that the politics is going to get in the way. Um, I are at the same time, there was an $8 billion aid package or whatever that was, that was, that went through the Senate. Are are we going to be able to get over our political differences to actually do something about this? No, no, no. Well, for two reasons, one, because of the political dynamics, right? I would also say what might be needed. And if, if what we've talked about in terms of the data hits, not just in the United States, but globally, right? I mean, if you think about the Italian economy these days, they've closed everything, but the Italian economy. It's like the eighth largest economy in the world. Yeah, that's right. right. And they've closed everything, but pharmacies and grocery stores. That's it. And I don't know how long that's going to play out, but that's a major hit. And if that's playing out across the globe, this is this is going to be potentially 2008. I mean, it's a big, big deal. And in 2008, you know, we threw basically everything we had, monetary, fiscal policy, all of that. The U.S. government went in huge debt. We can't do that. I mean, we, we can't cut interest rates anymore. I mean, that's basically we're giving money away as is. We're in massive debt. I don't think we're prepared for the potential cost that all of this would 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 bear but, but with basically right eight dollars right <laughs> <laughs> with basically zero percent interest though the the, the federal Ooh. government basically can borrow at negative interest rates right so mm-hmm. when you account for inflation we can borrow right now at like a half a percent on a 30-year note <laughs> that's that's insane uh, uh, treasury notes are the lowest they have ever been and so yeah. it, you're right we don't have that available but it, the the idea of like you know, borrowing some money, taking some money to address this um, seems like I, I know that that has become a political thing. Republicans don't, you know, our our, our budget deficit hawks when a Democrat is in office, but um, it's uh, it, it's now's the time to do it. I, I just no, I don't. We got to get over ourselves. There's, there's no more money, Phil. It's all gone. <laughs> so. No, we didn't borrow it. Just borrowing it. Dude, we've been borrowing it already, right? It's 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 fine. No, I worry about this, Nick. It's (laughs) fine. It's fine. You you should worry. That money doesn't mean anything. You should worry about it a year from now when we're not all about to die from a pandemic. Fair (laughs) enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. This is fun. Yeah, we we made (laughs) coronavirus fun. Should we we talk about beer? Sure. Phil, what are you enjoying? Uh, So I'm drinking. I'm I haven't really even paid that much attention to what I'm drinking. I'm drinking, uh, this is from Single Cut. Do what? You were fired up about coronavirus. I know, I know. Uh, So this is uh, from uh, Single Cut Brewing Company, which I've uh, 
single cut brew smiths i should be clear i've had a couple of their beers that have been really good this is their it's called weird and gilly it's their double dry hopped ipa i'm big on double dry hopped right now this is it's like good it's like good that's some that's some serious talk right there uh no i've been on a i've been on a double dry hop kick i'm really liking it i like that it, it adds the hoppiness but it doesn't seem to have as much of the bitterness um, this one is, is a really nice one. It, it doesn't necessarily, some of the beers I've had kind of stand out like they're unique. Um, this one is just a, a, a good example of a really nice double dry hopped IPA. It, it's nice, but it's not like, uh, you know, exceptional. Good. Would you have another? For sure. Okay, good. Nick, Nick, what <laughs> are we having? Now. Um, so we're having a, uh, an old Rasputin, which we've had previously, um, uh, and we're Russian... having it because we're going to talk about Putin. Of later. course, yes, <laughs> the two Rasputin. Um, yeah, we, you know, we've talked about it before. We've had a, a, a ton of different stouts on the podcast at this point, and Rasputin was originally it was one of those stouts when we didn't really have any uh, any other alternatives. Was it was so so good, yes. and it still is really good. But now, you know, because our palates are so developed, yes. there are tons of other good options out there. So I, so try a sip. So the second one we're going to have is this Great Lake. So try, hold, please. yeah, hold. Mm-hmm. No, that's. I think that's still your Rasputin. Uh-huh. Oh, okay, uh-huh. because we, we. I agree with you. We started the Rasputin and it was solid. And now we're. I was trying there. We're trying the Great Lakes Imperial Stout. It is dramatically better. Oh, I mean, right. it's just it's a little sweet. It's more complex. And I think you're right. We've mm. gotten better. Not we, but I mean the the industry has gotten so much better with stouts. Yes. Where it's it's just yeah, it is really really yeah. That has a good little maltiness to it. it multi, it's balanced. Uh, and when you transition from one to the other, so I mean I love Rasputin. They did a great job starting this conversation, but yeah, we've moved on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Anyways, if you guys want to check out the beers we have on the podcast, uh, like I said at the beginning, um, follow us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, search for Barstool Politics, and you will find all of our reviews on there. It's time for some speed round, Nick. Yes, sir. All right, we're starting with the Democratic primary, and what a couple of weeks it's been for Joe Biden. On Tuesday, <laughs> Where Super am tu- I? What Super Tuesday two? Yeah, uh, he won a major victory victories in the primary in Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, a, a bunch of places, uh, extending his delegate lead over Bernie Sanders. Michigan was by far the biggest prize of the night, dealing a dramatic blow to Bernie's hope of catching him in the delegate race. Interestingly, while one of Bernie Sanders' central argument has been that his supporters are uniquely enthusiastic about his candidacy, exit polls on Tuesday indicate that Mr. Biden's supporters are equally or even more enthusiastic. So they're old, Nick, but they are enthusiastic. Well, they're about to die from the coronavirus. Yeah, well, but that, a, that'll motivate a, a guy. Uh, additionally, not completely surprising, there's a huge generational gap in the results. When you look at the age breakdown, young people, oh, Bernie, crazy. yeah, crazy. and again, so much of it is about... Turnout. Older voters are overwhelmingly supportive of Biden and younger voters are overwhelmingly supportive of Sanders. The only problem is that there are simply not enough young people voting to give Sanders a chance. I mean, they are not they are not showing up at the polls. They were at that party in Dayton in the street. This is right. right. You, you, you got to before the police had to chase him away. You got to burn stuff. Phil. <laughs> You know Bernie as well as a man can know Bernie. Uh, what do you make of this transformation? <laughs> is you know a couple of weeks ago we said Bernie was unstoppable. At this point, is Biden unstoppable? And and what's your your take on all this? Yeah, uh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, Biden's unstoppable. I mean, Biden's won this. It's not, you know, there could be some external event that changes things, right? Biden, sorry, Biden could have a health crisis or whatever. But as it currently stands, Biden's going to win. He's going to be the nominee. Um, The part that's remarkable is that he won. It's not just that he won yesterday. It's that he won so overwhelmingly. Like He won every single county in Michigan and Missouri and in Mississippi. That is amazing. So for somebody who was you know, dismissed as, as, you know, done three weeks ago to, to have made this comeback is amazing. The part also a part about, I mean, Michigan was really big to Bernie four years ago. It was part of, you know, what, how he made his argument about how he could reach out to blue collar workers. Um, He lost a huge chunk of those voters who voted for him four years ago. I I think what that says to some extent, and, and this, I think is good news if you're a Democrat, I think that what what that says is it reveals how much of 2016 was about not Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. whether, you know, in the, it, that is true in the Democratic primary as well. So what ha- a huge chunk of the Bernie support um, was uh, four years ago was about people who didn't it wasn't yeah. that they loved Bernie necessarily. Some of them did, but a lot of them just didn't want Hillary Clinton to win. And then it repeated itself. Michigan is the perfect example. That's the way it played out in the primary. And then again, come election time, it was anti-Hillary Clinton, which is what drove people to vote for Donald Trump. Now, that should be encouraging because those people are back and they're fired up for Joe Biden. It's weird. You know, Joe Biden may not be all that fiery of a person, but I think what you're seeing right now in terms of the turnout and how people are voting and who is voting, it's you know African Americans, it's suburban white voters, it's even white working class voters and women too. Suburban and, women are yeah. are driving this too. Yeah, that should be a big warning sign for Donald Trump. I, I think as much as there was an anti Hillary Clinton vote in 2016, it's shaping up to be a real possibility of as strong an anti Donald Trump vote in this coming election. And, you know, we talk about negative partisanship a lot, like the idea that people aren't necessarily voting for a party, they're voting against a party. And this is the personification of that people showing up to vote against Hillary Clinton, and then potentially again, showing up to vote against Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I think that Michigan has to be very terrifying to the Trump Trump administration right now. Nick, mm-hmm. Nick, what's your read? Um, yeah, I mean, at this point, it's inevitable, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, Biden, to me, epitomizes just the the middle ground, deep state politician that so many people on the right and realistically in, in even, you know, the, the moderate right to, uh, you know, centrist Republicans rail against at this point. Um, I, I, I was listening to his speech uh, after uh, the results came in on Michigan. Um, and he was talking about, uh, I want to thank Bernie Sanders and his yes. supporters, uh, you know, for their tireless enthusiasm or, or something to that effect. He wasn't declaring victory. He wasn't he was, declaring. Yeah, he was yes. praising Bernie. But he and he goes, you know, with their help and their support, we will beat Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Not we're going to listen to your policy perspectives or help you integrate into the Democratic Party. All we know is we're going to beat Trump. That's it. He doesn't have any policy perspectives, anything that's going to change or move the needle in any sort of way. All he knows is we're trying to beat Donald Trump, which realistically, to me, if you're trying to bring those people in, those people who are or should be integral to the future of the Democratic Party, you're not doing your job. When you say that, you mean like Sanders supporters, Sanders supporters, people who think that the system is broken, who realistically were so 
instrumental in yeah. 2016 and and you know it, in the 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 preceding timeline or the yeah it, yeah. It's a tightrope, right? Because if he goes, you're, you're, this is such an important point. And I think as much as Biden's victory was important for the Democratic Party, what happens with Sanders and Sanders supporters is really going to be telling here. Because if Biden goes too far left and says, I'm all for Medicaid for all or something like that, he's going to alienate those more moderate voters who might get him elected. So he has to reach out to Sanders supporters without fully embracing their policy proposals. Now, what is Bernie going to do about this, right? So so today, Bernie said he's going to continue to campaign. This has to have... I know, this has to have the Democrat Party just up in arms because this is exactly what they don't want. They don't want... There's there's a debate coming up. The Democrats don't want a debate. They want everybody to get behind Biden and to turn their attention to Trump. If at the debate... Bernie is attacking Biden and, and, you know, trying to push him to the left. This is exactly what the Democrats don't want. I've never had more respect for Bernie. Well, and I, I good I for that's... him. Like, really, you know, like I make fun of him for being that guy, but he's I, I, I firmly believe he believes what he believes. Oh, there's no question about the integrity. Um, and of he it. should keep it because realistically, that's what the Democratic Party needs. I think at this well, point. they need for, it not maybe at this particular yeah. point, they, they may win the battle. At, at this point in time, they're not going to win the war with this kind of strategy. Well, I guess you, you have a very short leash on, leash on Bernie right now. You let him have the debate. You let him continue. But then you hope he suspends the campaign. If he takes us all the way to the convention, this is a disaster for the Democrats because the Democrats do not want a repeat of 2016. They want everybody on board. They want Bernie, Bernie supporters, everybody being pro-Biden at this point. Um, I, I don't know, Phil, do you think is, is that what's Bernie going to do? Well, I mean, if we look to 2016, he's not going anywhere. He's going to stick around and 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 fight it out because of you know principle or or whatever. I, I'm I'm less. I, I think you're right, Nick, in that there needs to be outreach to Bernie supporters, and I think that Biden. There are policies that Bernie supporters supported that are pretty popular across the board. A wealth tax is one of them. Like there's a lot of support across, you know, from liberal to moderate, even, you know, a number of Republicans, a lot of Republicans don't necessarily have a problem with saying the super, super, super rich are going to get taxed. So find some of those popular policies and and integrate them, reach out to them. The, the other part of it that, that makes me a little more skeptical is that the the there's a lot of evidence that in this election that we thought was going to be about policy is not about policy. Voters don't care. I think it's about yeah. decency or or whatever, normality, right? People just want to go back to normal. And so you saw candidates who dealt, you know, the Democrats, a lot of the early ones who were out early were ones who went hard on policy and shifted left and thought the party is moving progressive. And it is. But those voters haven't been showing up and the voters who do show up have been largely, you know, they're, they're progressive, right? They're progressive, but they're not Bernie progressive. Um, and, and I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know that. I think if Biden doesn't, if Biden just stays bland, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, if you're a Bernie supporter, who's like, screw Biden, I'm not voting for him. He's too moderate. I don't know that if he reaches out to you, that it's necessarily going to change your mind. I, 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 I think it will for some, um, but, but part of me looking back on it thinks that sleepy Biden or whatever has been kind of, I don't know if it, I don't know that it was intentional, but it sort of turned out genius because it allows people to see what they want in him and, and not get caught up in policy issues. I, I, I certainly think he's been playing the long game and it didn't play well in Iowa or New Hampshire, but especially think about a state like Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is going to come down. Basically Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, these states are going to decide the election. 
Biden early out came came out and said, I am pro fracking. I'm not going to take the Bernie Sanders or the Elizabeth Warren position about anti fracking that I'm going to ban fracking. And that will mean that Biden is likely to win Pennsylvania because of that one issue. You know, that's a that's a major issue for a lot of blue collar voters in Pennsylvania. It's a strategic it's a long term vote. It didn't serve him well in New Hampshire. But I, I really think they are playing the long game. They got lucky too, but but this is all exception. For, for, yeah, right. Yeah, you're running against an avowed socialist. Yep. No, that's that, your that's your alternative. That, that helps too. It's the lesser of two <laughs> yes, evils. Right. I, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Well, I was just going to say that you know we we talk about how Democrats need to be more practical or play the game better, and the fracking thing is a good example in which there are a lot of people who are opposed to fracking, but there are very few voters who are fracking voters, right? There are people in Pennsylvania, it'll make a difference. But the average person, if you're trying to decide between Donald Trump and and Joe Biden, I don't imagine that fracking is the thing that pushes your vote over the edge. So it's a strategic decision that, you know, it may not line up with, you know, I, I can't imagine that 20 years from now, the Democratic Party is going to be like, we're cool with fracking. But in this particular moment, if you want to win, if that's your goal, then, you know, some of these trade-offs seem seem important and, and in the other in the end also who the president is matters but if you control the if if you have progressives that are being elected to congress they're going to be passing progressive bills that the president will sign joe biden will sign them if if they're you know they're anyway i, I think that matters in a lot of ways in terms of policy more than who the president is and if you're joe biden and you're thinking about the bernie supporters who are not i mean facebook has been the Bernie supporters on Facebook have been ugly about Biden support. The Bernie brothers? Yes. Bernie, <laughs> so they, brothers. The Bernie bros. So, so, but when it gets to the general election and this becomes, a, to Phil's point, an issue about do you control the House, do you control the Senate and the Supreme Court? I think the Bernie supporters will show up. If the idea is that the Supreme Court is going to continue to be conservative, I mean, you know there are a number of liberal justices who are going to probably not make it another four years. Uh, so this this is, I, I think this will <clears throat> cause, cause them to show up and vote. No, keep fighting the good fight. Long live the revolution. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> one, one quick thing yeah. before we finish, and this has been an exceptionally long one. Um, we keep talking about this return to normalcy and just the, I don't know about the middle way is, is the best way to put it, but the way that the system was prior to 2016. You know who isn't going to vote for that? Every single Republican at this point, the, the, the middle way, the, the normal way that things have operated. And realistically, a lot of Democrats prior to 2016 were saying the system is broken. You know, we are not represented in this system anymore. Um, something drastic needs to be done. Um, that is not what he Joe Biden is the epitome of that. And re, I think he yeah. is he's he's a vessel that other people have poured <clears throat> policy and standards and you know their own interpretations into he he doesn't have anything himself but i i don't think that's a powerful enough statement to make to win an election i think this is again maybe he wins in in you know in, in the next election but i think this is this is an argument that is going to continue to happen and is only going to to continue to to boil over as time goes on something something is going something fundamental is going to need to change if these parties are going to survive in <clears throat> in the, the the forms that they are now i don't disagree with that i do think that in this election hate is going to trump 
love and mm. Trump, right? And and in this case, I think that the people are going to hate Trump more than they're going to hate Biden, right? Because Biden's not a – you don't hate Biden. You're like, eh, with him. And I think for a lot of suburban voters, Biden will be very, very appealing. But love Trump's hate. People just kind of, eh, Biden. A lot of people love Trump. Hate is, hate is good <laughs> stuff. My, my gut – I know we need to move on, but I, my gut agrees with you in that, like, this, in order to sort of survive in the long term, like, there has to be change and whatever. But then I look at the data, which is that people show up and vote in massive numbers, right? It's not like a small section of people who have gone Joe Biden. When voters have been given the choice between like a dramatically change how the Democratic Party looks or let's go with this guy who's a lifetime old school Democrat that looks like business as usual, they have lined up overwhelmingly for the lifetime old school, let's do it the old way sort of thing. And which makes me think, you know, I, I, I agree. And Nick, I would have thought that that, that that was not what people wanted right now. But now the question is generationally, right? Like 20 years from now, um, <laughs> that, that I can't imagine that playing out. Right. And that's where I think the, the Biden would be really smart to pick a young not super progressive, but more progressive uh, vice president that would that would sort of say, yeah, I'm going back to normal, but we're also looking to the future. Mm -hmm. Spot on, right? I know we need to move on, but I think that's the key where he can signal to the Bernie supporters. If he goes young, he goes more progressive with the VP, something people are excited about. I think that takes care of a lot of that, those, those concerns. It's going to be very important when his, you know, base voting block um, is all dead from the coronavirus. So, you know, <laughs> you joke that this, this could matter. All right, moving on. Also too soon. <laughs> Right. So Facebook did a, took a stand against this disinformation on Thursday when it removed what it said was a misleading ad run by President Trump's reelection campaign about the 2020 census. Earlier this week, Trump Make America Great Again, a joint fund uh, raising arm of Donald J. Trump, President Inc., and the Republican National Committee started running ads on the social media site Facebook. Have you heard of Facebook? No. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, that could have caused confusion about the timing of the census. The ad stated, quote, President Trump needs you to take the official 2020 congressional district census today. We need to hear from you before the most important election in American history, unquote. The Census Bureau will not. OK. Uh, OK. For the record, the Census Bureau will not begin to survey the public for its population survey until next week. Facebook, Twitter and YouTube have become have come under pressure for their handling of political speech and what has been a piecemeal approach to political speech, allowing candidates and their campaign to post misleading information and target these messages to specific audience. But in this instance, Facebook said Trump's campaign message violated its policy against interference in the census. Phil, should we applaud Facebook or is this just an inconsequential drop in the informational bucket? Uh, both. So, um, yeah, I mean, we should applaud them when they do the right thing. But this is also like I, this is this whole story to me is sh shocking. And I think that it shows the extent to which we've just gotten used to a new normal that this just seems like, well, of course, there's stupid ads on Facebook. But it's shocking that. It wasn't just Trump for president. It was the Republican National Committee that was part of this, that was that was trying to frame what they're doing as the census. Um, so it's shocking that they would do that. <laughs> it's like so not kind of politics as usual. Um, it's also shocking that Facebook would do anything about this because they're 
assholes. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really have a while before they did anything. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who, who don't do anything to, to put, to stop stuff except for like, you know, when we try to run an ad and it has a picture of a president on it. So they say that's <laughs> political and you can't do that. So it, their policies are, are stupid. Um, uh, but having said that, I, I haven't read all the details, but if the fact that they're, the thing they're citing is that it interferes with the census, not this ad is full of shit and is not true. I, that, I mean, that reveals that they're like, again, kind of going up against technicalities. They're not yeah. actually saying we're policing any level of accuracy in these ads. It's just that you can't mess with the census. The what? <laughs> so, I, I mean, the whole thing is also is, is like a perfect snapshot of how screwed up our system is and how we have a lot of stuff that we've got to oh, figure yeah. out if we're going to get things actually to, to work properly. Some of the questions that Trump included in the census survey said, quote, do you think Nancy Pelosi and the radical left are putting their personal anti-Trump agenda ahead of what's best for the American people? Yes. In the census. Five, ten. Do, what is the top? <laughs> do you approve or disapprove of the Democrats' big government socialist agenda? Oh, this census is fun. <laughs> yes. I should always do that. The, another question. Do you think the Democrats' failed impeachment witch hunt against the President Trump will actually end up helping <laughs> their chances of winning in November? Brownie face. <laughs> That was in the census, Nick. <laughs> why, why would they? I mean, it's curious that they would even say this is a census related thing. Right? I mean, they're choosing to say this yeah, in the crazy ad. kids. You know, okay. Having yeah. fun. Do you, uh, do, you, do you think that isn't so I don't I saw somebody um, said to the other day on Twitter that the problem with the Trump administration is that you can't ever really pin down when you look at their actions, how much of it is malevolence and how much of it is like incompetence <laughs> like yeah. how much it, it, because they look so much alike. Um, and this is an example in the, like you, if you were really strategic, you could say that, you know, as a, that, that you want to interfere with the census, right? Because Republicans want numbers down that could benefit them. I, I don't know. But that doesn't really fit here, because if you're appealing to Republican voters, you don't want them to say, I've already done the census. I don't need to do it when it comes around. I, is this just in, is it just stupid? They're just not even thinking through it. They're just like, hey, people take this poll. This is one of those rare occasions I would say this was really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's just it seems ham handed. It seems like you know, some 25 year old staffer said, Hey, let's give this a try and see what happens. And it got blown out of proportion. Um, a, a couple other primary points on this one, anybody who thinks that they're taking the census through Facebook shouldn't be on Facebook and should probably <laughs> I, I, various other things. I would guess the overlap of people who think you're supposed to take the face the like the, there seems like a common population if you think the face the, the type of people who are on facebook are the type of people who think that it, the census would be done by trump this way yeah the ones who are you know like coughing in a, a public event and wiping their hands on things and, you know <clears throat> whatnot um god what was the other point i just had sorry um, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> if you got something, I'll think of it. What's our, what are we talking about? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Bill. Well, no, this is one where, I, like Phil, I don't understand what the motivation here is, other than maybe creating chaos. So the the you know the the idea the, Trump does all sorts of polls like this, where they ask these like leading questions, but why throw the word census in there, other than to maybe create 
confusion and maybe confusion will lead to people being worried about this but people who are getting this email are hardcore republicans right it's not going to be people who you know who i i don't know right. it seems like a dumb thing no yeah. i mean to phil's point if people take this and yeah. then somebody says you need to take the census i already, oh, took, I already it. took it yeah you know, it was pretty entertaining too. i'm glad you Facebook. guys <laughs> livened it up a little screw bit screw that nancy pelosi <laughs> <laughs> um the other part of this is something needs to be done about social networks and their uh, willingness to um, or, or or just freedom to put any sort of ad out there whatsoever. Yeah. This should be congressional legislation saying you can't have any sort of political ad that would potentially interfere or, or just really any political ad um, related to an election or political parties, especially within, um, you know, the, the span of an election cycle that could influence people's opinions. And yep. nobody seems willing to, nobody within uh, Congress seems to be willing to do that. And, and to, to Twitter's credit, they've moved in that direction where Twitter is much better about banning political No, ads. that's a left-wing conspiracy. <laughs> than Facebook about. is, right? Facebook, I mean, I, you know, I give Facebook a little bit of credit and emphasis on the little because they're still allowing all sorts of stuff no, to go on No, and realistically, that, <clears throat> that's, you know, that's, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say, you should realistically either you should allow things as they are and let people make their, uh, the decisions or do the research themselves, or you shouldn't allow anything. Yeah. So they seem to be going the other way that most social media platforms are. This going. is really an interesting question. And we should do this with Tom sometime <clears throat> thinking about free speech and all of this, because it feels like, you know, we always err on the side of, of more free speech, but what social media does is it's just all noise mm -hmm. and it's not really speech it's terrible yeah it's really terrible follow us on twitter by the way <laughs> and, and facebook, facebook. and soon, we, we won't and give you misleading information at all soon instagram nick i'm figuring out the instagram i think it could be okay you're figuring out the gram <laughs> Phil's all over the gram he really is doing some good work on the gram so all right let's, let's switch topics talk about federal judges Jesus so Christ. last thursday a federal judge in washington sharply criticized attorney general william barr for a quote lack of candor questioning the truthfulness of the nation's top law enforcement official in his handling of last year's report by the special counsel Robert Mueller. U.S. District Judge Reggie Walton, overseeing a lawsuit brought by Epic, a watchdog group, and BuzzFeed News, said he saw serious discrepancies between Barr's public statements about the Mueller about Mueller's finding and the pub, uh, in public, and partially redacted versions of that report detailing the special counsel's investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election. Because of those discrepancies, Walton ruled the judge would conduct his own independent review of Mueller's full report to see whether Justice Department's redactions were appropriate. Walton is no liberal judge and was appointed by George W. Bush. Phil, while this is not likely to make a big difference, this is a pretty big blow to Bill Barr's credibility. What's your What's your read on this? Um, I, you know, I don't know what to what to think of this, right? I, I, I um, from from one standpoint, I think the the more information that is available about the Mueller report and the information from you know Mueller's grand juries and all of that is is you know is 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 good. Um, I, I don't know. I'm kind of curious what the what the two of you think about this. I, the idea that the government, you know, that the top law enforcement officer gets to make decisions about what is redacted and what shouldn't get get w withdrawn seems to make sense. Now, if he's doing it not based on sort of, uh, you know, a dispassionate legal analysis of things, but is doing it based on self-interest, that is problematic but that seems to speak to the structure of this of the system and how these decisions are made uh so yeah i mean i think it, it is it i 
I don't think this is anything new in, in that we all knew that that Bill Barr presented a favorable mm-hmm. <laughs> story about the Mueller report when he went out and released stuff. To have a judge say it and, and a you know a Bush appointee you know adds to that to that credibility question. But again, it raises more questions about why is this the way we do these things in the first place? Having a why don't we have an independent judge or panel of yeah. judges who go through and make the decisions about what gets redacted in in the first place? Why is it a a political appointee that gets to make those decisions at all? That seems like the bigger the bigger issue. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, to, to Phil's point, I think that the fact that the top law enforcement uh, representative in the country is a political appointee is um, severely problematic, to say the least. Love along, it. Love it, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, among uh, you know, a, a lot of different uh, positions in the federal government, um, the system needs to change fundamentally to to avoid that kind of conflict of interest. Um, Barr himself, which realistically prior to this administration, and we talked about this, had a pretty good record. Yeah. You know, he was well respected. Um, the previous attorney general, previous yeah. attorney general. And there didn't seem to be any sort of thought that. He, he he had these sort of uh, uh, either political leanings or or personal motivations that that would um, allow this to go forward. I, I think that um, he's he's an interesting case because it Bar. seems like uh, yeah uh, that he's that um, fondness of Trump himself or the administration seems to be waning on a personal level, um, and you see a, a few more cracks in the facade every day. But at the same time, um, yeah, the the core point is something needs to change in the system where we shouldn't need to have these discussions anymore. Not disagreeing with anything you guys said. You're very, all very brilliant. I think the one thing I would I would point is that everybody is, is focusing on the redactions, right? Are the, the judges saying, I'm going to look at the redactions. I'm guessing those are fine, right? Because Mueller was involved with those. I'm less right. interested in that. The fact that a federal judge is focusing on how Barr presented, that that strikes me as the big story. He's saying that what Barr did was not tell the truth here. He framed this in for political reasons, and that that is why I need to look into this. That, to me, seems like the big, big story. And again, we knew this in the moment because we were able to see the report. But Barr's role in framing in those early days, the Mueller report had such a big influence. And, and so much of this is because as, as you know, the American public doesn't care. We don't read things, you know, but if you read the Mueller report, even the redacted Mueller report, it's devastating. Um, so I just, I just feel like, you know, we're idiots. We're, we're not holding our government accountable. Mm-hmm. No, we're not. Yeah. History history is going to not look back fondly on Bill Barr, right? He's not going to in in the in the his, you know, in this era, he is what he has going for him is that there are other figures who are going to be focused on even more. But but yeah, I mean, he's he's not going I think I think you're right. It's it's not going to you know, he's not going down in history looking looking positive for this. <laughs> here's here's the other aspect of this. And um, you know, this is be me being partially flippant, but also serious. Judges have gotten really lippy as of late. Oh, it's true. Um, There was a, I think it was today that the story came out. Um, uh, I forgot where the judge was from. Um, Wrote some scathing uh, 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 report or or article um, in reference to John Roberts and the conservative court and the conservative bent to the Supreme Court 
and you know how they're attempting to dismantle legal precedent, uh, voting rights and abortion rights. And there's, a judge was doing a this. judge was doing this. Um, and there's something to be said. And, and Tom has talked about this. You know, there's a difference between you know being an arbiter of established precedent and the law and legislating from within the Supreme Court or from the judicial branch, which is, again, problematic from my perspective. So I, I tend to take a lot of this with a grain of salt. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with some of the, the, the points that this particular judge has made, but not all of this should be, you know, taken at, at face value. Nick, this is a perfect transition to our next topic. Fine. All right. Let's, I mean, it's just, it couldn't be better. So, all right. Chuck Schumer. So Wednesday morning at the Supreme Court, as the Supreme Court heard arguments in, ma in a major abortion case Senate, case, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Minority Leader, uh, spoke at an abortion <laughs> rights rally outside the court. One line of his remarks swiftly generated outrage among conservatives and received a rare public rebuke from Justice Chief Justice John Roberts. The Schumer quote that triggered Roberts' re uh, reply is this, quote, I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what will hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions, unquote. That's pretty scary, Nick. It is kind of scary. The blowback against Schumer was swift and intense. President Trump weighed in in his distinctly Trumpian way, tweeting, quote, there can be few things worse in a civilized, law-abiding nation than a United States senator openly and for all to see and hear threatening the Supreme Court or the or its justices. This is what Chuck Schumer just did. He must pay a severe price for this. Trump court. would never do that. Would never target or attack Supreme Court justices. <laughs> John Roberts appears to have interpreted this statement as a direct threat against uh, justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, and released a statement saying. Justices know the criticism, that criticism comes with the territory, but threatening statements of this sort from the highest levels of government are not only inappropriate, they are dangerous, unquote. Phil, so much of this depends on context, but however you read this comment, it's just another reflection on the deep ugliness within the American democracy. What's your reaction to all of this? Uh, so, I mean, the, the statements that, that he's making, right, about reaping the whirlwind are like are allusions to to Gorsuch's um, confirmation hearing where he he said something along those lines. Kavanaugh, uh, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh. Yeah. Kavanaugh. Sorry. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, Schumer's wrong. Right. I mean, I, he, I think I think that Roberts is right to say that you shouldn't be making the you shouldn't he shouldn't be standing in front of the Supreme Court threatening or calling into question the the um the the two the two newest conservative justices now can the american people in their conversations do that sure but chuck schumer plays a different role right he is he is a part of this political process he shouldn't be shouldn't be doing that i've seen a lot of people that have jumped into this with you know what aboutism right which points out that you know what about what about trump right what about trump because trump does this too but just like people were critical of Trump targeting or critiquing Supreme Court justices for the same the same reason that that is problematic is the reason why it is problematic for Chuck Schumer to be to be doing this as well. Um, so. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, you know, it, it again, it's worth I don't I don't know if it's worth pointing out or not. I, I mean, 
the you know John Roberts issued a statement for this. He didn't issue a statement previously when Trump has done this. But again, that doesn't matter, right? It, that doesn't change whether it's wrong for what what Schumer did. And and just again, just like it, it's wrong for Trump to to sort of try to inject these these partisan divisions um, and pressures into the Supreme Court, uh, it, it it's also wrong for Schumer. I, the other part that I come around to and, and I, that I've wrestled with less is that I, unlike Tom. I, I think the Supreme Court is political. It is a political entity. And so politics does play into it. But I do think that the norms of of kind of keeping the distance and, and isolating, insulating the Supreme Court is important. Nick, Phil's on fire. <laughs> just, just, this, was, this was, I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned a lot. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, my point kind of stands from the last conversation. Realistically, I... I there's there's a difference between um thinking that the supreme court is should either is or should uh legislate uh you know opinions or or precedent or or new legislation compared to um interpreting the current law or current standards um chuck schumer is just a piece of shit i've always thought that but this just confirmed it um this is it's God, I, I, I like I, I, I'm there's not a good way to describe it. I, I think that, um, you know, Tom has talked about this uh, a number of times um, that as much as I, I agree with you, Phil, that I, I do think that the Supreme Court is a political body, given the way that it's structured and how people are appointed. But at the same time, we've seen this particular court in terms of its decisions play out where the conservatism doesn't seem to be playing out the way that people thought that it would. The decisions that they've made aren't in lockstep with the Trump administration or even with conservative standards. Um, so to make this, this, you know, just political sideshow that Schumer does or that anybody does, um, you know, rebuking the, the Supreme court for any of these decisions, just based off of the fact that you don't agree with a particular, point that's being argued or a point that's being put forward that they've decided to hear shouldn't matter that that's not your choice the the law is there the mm -hmm. precedent is there it's for them to decide um to me it seems you know the, again the court is relatively even keel maybe a conservative bent in some situations but i think it's less political than most people and certainly less than than Schumer is portraying it as well. And this is this is the reality of living in Trump world where Trump wants us to Trump wants Schumer to say those things. Right. And in a in a in a world where Trump is trying to make everything political, this is where you have to be most careful. Mm -hmm. You know, they talk about the, the when you think about like nonviolent movements. If you're a nonviolent movement, you can never engage in violence because the minute you gauge even in the most small element of violence, you have broke your own norms and the other side can crush you. Right. And this strikes me as Chuck Schumer has to argue that Trump is the problem in the political system. He's bringing partisanship to everything. And then but the minute that Chuck Schumer engages in exactly the same thing Trump does, he's no different than Trump. And that that's why I'm so frustrated with Schumer. He has to be more restrained. He has to understand the, the, what's playing out here. And by attacking Supreme Court justices, he becomes Trump. It, it's silly. It's stupid. And he should he should know better, especially as a leader. It's one thing if AOC does this entirely different if Chuck Schumer does it. 
Let me uh, before we move on. I, I, I let me ask a different question, which is the the question that might seem like there's a simple answer at first, but I think it's more complex. Is this effective? Does this work? Because there's a question about whether it's right or not. But we've talked on here about how John Roberts doesn't want to appear, you know, partisan, that he's trying to make the the appearance of of an independent judiciary. I I don't think that like a Kavanaugh um, is going to like, if anything, you know, I, I imagine that Schumer doing this would if so, you know, we can assume that we can start with the assumption that they're all they're all totally neutral and they're just ruling on right. the on the law. Oh, but they're people. Right. right. Yeah. And they're they're you know, some of them are conservative and some of them aren't. So I would imagine like Kavanaugh. Right. This isn't going to affect him. If anything, it's going to make him more determined to you know screw you, Schumer. But if you're John Roberts and you're worried about the court appearing partisan and Chuck Schumer's out there saying, if you do this, it is, you know, partisan. Does that you know, in, in some even in a subtle way, in a subconscious way, does that affect how he approaches decisions? Yeah, I, especially. Mm. So this is a really narrow case, but especially in this case, and it's important to say this is a case that the course, court has already decided five four against the ruling, right? So this is the same law. This is the idea that <clears throat> you have to have admitting privileges, and the court has said you can't do that kind of a law, and now it's a different court, so they're bringing it back. So I, I think you're. This is a spot on question, Phil, because. I wonder whether Roberts wants to overturn precedent a couple of years later and appear entirely partisan. So I don't know how much Schumer's antics matter, but it certainly is weighing on his head. Yes. Nick, no? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have to move on. Anyway. All right. All right. Fine. Okay. This is a fun topic. So. All right. As our regular listeners know, we always enjoy ending on a fun topic. Today, we're going to predict who is likely to stay in political power longer. Our contestants are Presidents Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. I bring this up because on Tuesday, Putin endorsed a proposal that would reset his constitutional term limit clock to zero and would allow him to serve for an additional two six-year terms when his tenure expires. The legislation must still be approved by Russia's constitutional court, which it will, and a nationwide referendum in April, which it will, but things are looking up for Putin. It means Putin could serve until 2036 or conceivably longer, which will mean that he will will have held national office for 32 years, longer than Stalin, but still short of Peter the Great. But, you know, he could make a run for that. who reigned for 43 years. Now, we should also note that Trump has repeatedly toyed with staying in power past two terms and even tweeted a video of him staying in power until 2088, Nick. It's it's totally possible. Um, (laughs) So if you had to bet on who do you think it's likely to be in power longer, is this a slam dunk case for Putin or does Trump have a chance? Phil, start us off. Jesus Christ, you've done right, (laughs) these things. Uh, it's a slam dunk. Um, so Trump, uh, so Putin's going to win. He's done this multiple times. Uh, he's not going to win fair. He's going to rig uh, elections and ballot boxes and do whatever it takes to stay in power for, for, for longer. But I'll play along with the fun part, of it, <laughs> which is, uh, well, and the, the other part is that, uh, there are constitutional limits and whatnot. I, I don't, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump, it is dangerous that Trump pushes those norms and challenges those notions, but there are lots of checks in place that make me fairly confident that, that, uh, that, that wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't happen. 
Having said that, though, uh, even if Trump could alter things and get away with it, that man, he's not. Putin is going to outlive Trump. Putin is going to outlive Trump unless you somehow give points to the fact that Trump must be full of preservatives based on his diet. But, uh, But regardless, even if both of them have the ability to stay in office as long as possible. Yeah, Trump, uh, Putin's going to outlive Trump by by long periods of time because of the filet of fish. He's he's the Benjamin <laughs> Button of presidents. Yes, yes. Putin is. <laughs> no, oh, no Trump, Trump is. is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he has those filet of fish yeah. preservatives in him. Um, no, this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the physical impossibility of Trump being in there in there is is one thing, but. To think realistically, I, I saw that w- when he put that or retweeted that, that yeah. tweet with, you know, all the signs of him going to 2088 or whatever the hell it was. And Trump forever. And Trump forever. And you guys are just so much fun and so easy to troll. It's it's just like, I, I, I mean, I know I would do that. Yeah. That It's just so much fun. You, <laughs> no, I, I get that. And he loves trolling the libs. But there's a couple things I think about. One is how you undermine those norms is by doing stuff like this. Right. And then when an election goes the wrong way, you argue this was unfair. I mean, Putin didn't start doing this. Like it was a slow process. So it's not in, this. This happens all the time in democracies. I think you guys are right that it's less likely to occur. The other thing I would throw out there, it's not a certainty that everybody's going to continue to love Putin for another 12 years they already um, don't love him they just they, they they're just kept out of the system if they don't love him. Right. so it's entirely possible that trump wins re-election and putin is thrown out of office in two years that's not possible but not likely no. well here's the thing so i mean i think that so putin this is great so so putin couldn't change these rules himself they brought the constitutional changes to the legislature and then the legislature had to propose amendments so the the individual who proposed the change was the first woman in space, a cosmonaut. Uh-huh. She said we should change this and reset the clock. So I, a Soviet hardliner. Exactly, okay. right? So I wonder whether there might not be pushback. And if Putin, again, goes through with this plan to say, I'm going to stick around forever for the good of the country, for the balance, for stability, there, there might be pushback. And we might see Putin out of office sooner than later. And we might see Trump longer than we expect. But regardless, even if Putin is not in, in in that particular position, you know he's running the government until the day that he dies. Or his loyalists are running the government until the day that he dies. I don't know. I wonder, or until the day that he doesn't, right? I mean, that's the thing. We don't know when revolutions are going to occur. I, I mean, this is... <sighs> This is the Soviet Union. Nobody thought the Soviet Union was going to collapse. Nobody thought the Berlin Wall was going to Because it didn't collapse because it's here right now. Like, this is no different than the Soviet Union, realistically. You, we can talk about yeah. a free Russia all we want since, you know, the the the, the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Nothing has changed since since Putin has been in power, realistically. If anything, it's gone closer mm-hmm. to, to you know, the the original conception of the Soviet Union. I, I, just, I, I, just smaller, just just smaller, not as well, kind of as effective. Yeah, but um, more efficient. I'll say that. Um, no, he's going to stay there as long as is humanly possible. And for whatever reason, there is some sort of massive upheaval where it's not him in the head office. Someone else who he is pulling the strings with is going to be there. So, so what are the odds? Is there any chance that, that Trump outlasts them? If you're, if you're, you know, throwing... fuck no. Okay. All right. Yeah. So no, I, I will on in four years after he wins this election. Phil, is there any, <laughs> what, you, what the odds, odds are there? 
yeah, there's a chance. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right. You you know, these things are unpredictable. Putin, it, it, people who are authoritarian leaders stay in power through fear and power, and 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 eventually that breaks down. Right? Like he is not popular. The the military could turn on him. That none of that is likely, but it is possible. Um, and it is possible that Trump wins re-election and is in power for. I, I don't think it's. I, it is technically possible that he could be in for more than two terms. Really, really unlikely. But yeah, I, I think if there is a chance that Trump is reelected and is president, you know, for another five years, right, a year now and then and four more. And I think the odds that that Putin is ousted in that five year period, either because these things don't pass or because of some sort of political upheaval or whatever, are are not not nothing. Uh, I mean, five percent. Oh, you, you're both wrong. It's it's at least twenty five percent. You're out of your mind. <laughs> this is fun, Nick. I, I, I just, hmm. I and here's here's another of me being the perpetual optimist. Predict I think you should do this. Predict it should create a market. Who lasts longer? Do that. They don't Trump or Putin? I know what you're talking about. Um, no, I I think that you need to give some sort of credit to the American system that we built and the American you know citizenry yeah. to say that we're not going to allow a president to, to stay beyond two terms. It's been the precedent since the foundation of the country. Like I, I don't, I, I think any person who has any conception of history or an understanding of the, uh, the importance of the core American institutions, um, they would have a severe problem with that. It, it would, it will, it will never, ever happen. I agree. I still think there's a 25% chance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Bill can be the pessimist now. <laughs> yes. Now on. That's a good way to end. Um, so real quick before we do the music and all that stuff, like I said at the beginning, if you guys weren't here, uh, we're going to be moving uh, podcast hosting to uh, Anchor. This isn't going to affect you if uh, you know, you're listening through iTunes or Spotify or most major podcasting platforms. Um, just our, our library will still be available on SoundCloud, which is where we're hosted right now. Um, but new episodes will be posted everywhere else. Um, so just keep tabs on that. Um, if anything changes, we will definitely tell you. And then we're going to try and do, uh, you know, live audio episodes, uh, in the future, maybe next week, maybe the week after. I don't really know. We're going to see how we feel about it, but, um, yeah, we'll put, uh, information on social about that stuff. Um, so definitely keep tabs on that. Um, specifically, uh, Twitter, uh, at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, beers that we try, you can find on untapped on iOS or Android. Um, just look for Barstool Politics on there. And the podcast currently is on, uh, SoundCloud, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, I already said SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. <clears throat> Please, uh, review us share us like us through there i'm, I'm starting to sound You're like you and it's really not good <laughs> um hey, we always appreciate the support and then our merch line you can find on teespring.com uh look for the direct link on our social channels um mugs t-shirts hoodies all kinds of fun stuff with uh new things added all the time um so check that out um and, and also let's let's put a plug in for soap wash your hands Wash your hands, yep. filthy animals. Don't touch your face. <laughs> and I'm just watching myself on camera touching my face the entire episode. Um, don't, don't, don't be like Nick. <laughs> be the next t-shirt. <laughs> Anything else, guys? This is great. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. See you guys next week. 
Shut up and sit down.